Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain, and welcome back from the weekend. Uh, we have another full show for everybody today with lots to talk about. Uh, there, we're going to talk about momentous uh, elections in both France and Colombia. Very exciting. In both places. I mean, you don't even have to really like the results to be excited by the fact that these were watershed yeah. uh, elections. I like the results considering other options. Yeah. I, I would have liked I'm, a, I'm I would have liked a, a, a you know a actual victory for Melanchon's uh yeah. for Melanchon's block, and then I would have liked would to agree. see at least see him try to do what he said and give Julian Assange French citizenship. Yes. Um that but you would know, be I'll nice. take I'll take this. We're going to talk also just briefly, but there was a massacre in uh, in Ethiopia over the weekend. There are reports that between 200 and 230 villagers were killed. We're going to talk to uh, Wyatt Reed about that and about the developments in Colombia. That's going to be kind of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to talk about shootings around the country, including right here in Washington, D.C. and environs. A couple of yeah. them. There was a shooting inside the Tyson's Corner uh, Mall. Just outside of town. And I'll admit, I go to Tyson's Corner all the time. Oh, I avoid Tyson's Corner if I possibly can. Well, you know why I go, and you're going to laugh at me, but sometimes it gets so hot in the summer that it's the only place where I can walk around and still remain cool. Oh, it's the same <laughs> in places that it gets really cold. Malls are really popular, yeah. and I understand it. It's the only place you can you can walk around, you can do your shopping, you can stretch your yeah. legs a little bit and not freeze to death. I'll tell yeah. you what, we, we had a storm a couple of summers ago, and it knocked out power, and my power was out for eight days. And so every day hanging I out would, at Auntie Anne's. Yeah, well, I'd hang out. There's a fantastic Starbucks there on the second floor of the Barnes and Noble, and I could at least charge my phone and have a nice, you know, frappuccino or whatever, and read the paper and, and see other people walk yeah, by. Exactly. I can't believe I can't believe I'm defending malls, but actually, <laughs> it turns out the alternatives were kind of worse. Just well, having people bring individual beverages to yeah, your door. That's right. Yeah, get out there and rub elbows. And yesterday, uh, apparently, there was some kind of a, a dispute between. Two people, one pulled out a gun and fired three shots into the air. People panicked and the whole place just emptied out. Nobody was injured, thank goodness. But at the same time, nobody was uh, was arrested. They never identified the guy that actually fired the shots. Great job. Here in Washington, uh, there was a Juneteenth uh, celebration and concert and there was a shooting there. One person actually was killed and several were uh, were wounded. So, you know, this kind of thing, it just doesn't seem to stop. We're going to talk also about uh, the controversy over trans athletes competing in national and international sporting events. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the latest in D.C. politics. Uh, but meanwhile, there are a few stories that uh, that we wanted to talk about. They may not be the most important stories in the world, mm -hmm. but they're interesting to us. And I think to our readers or our listeners, rather. Sorry, I write a lot. And yes, I'm used I'm to saying yeah, yeah. our readers, Israel announced that it was building a U.S. sponsored Middle East regional air defense alliance and that the system had already foiled what they described as several Iranian attacks, Iranian attacks. I don't recall ever in the history of the planet, the Iranians ever firing rockets at Israel. Yeah. So what are they talking about? Yeah. I, I mean, think I figured it out. Are they just making it up? I think that what they're talking about is a couple of rockets that were lobbed over from Gaza 
And they say, well, the Iranians support Hamas and Hamas probably did the rockets. So those are Iranian air attacks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who uh, over the weekend met with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, said that the alliance would be further boosted by President Biden's visit to the region next month. Gantz wouldn't say which countries were part of the alliance. Very strange. But media speculation has centered on the usual suspects, Jordan, Egypt, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Um, We'll see where this goes. But the crown jewel in such an alliance the the thing that would make such an alliance a serious big deal, in my view, would be the addition of Saudi Arabia. And um, why? Because the Saudis control so much of the territory that the Iranians would have to cover if they were to launch an attack right. on on Israel. Uh, that it would make it that much more difficult. And one other thing I wanted to add, and I know I've told this story on other shows, but it bears repeating. A couple of years ago, four four or five years ago, um, Saudi air defenses one day just suddenly went down. They just went off, unprecedented. And then two hours later, they came back online again. And it turned out that the Saudis had shut their air defenses off to allow Israeli fighter jets to cross Saudi territory to see how long it would take them to bomb Iran and turn around and go back to Israel. Yeah, it's just this is all fascinating to me because, again, it's really, you know, it's a a defense alliance, defense alliance. I mean, who who is the aggressor here? Right. Most of the time, you know, and honestly, I mean, one, you know. The Abraham Accords, right, that had a really big name. It was yeah. presented as some kind of, you know, but it was just Thumbs a big. down from me. Just sort of like a, a little bit of a trade. Yeah. A trade deal. That right? was it. And, question, and remember that Israel had never been at war with any of these countries. Right. That was part of the Abraham. Right. Accord. And so I'm very I, I'm curious what this will be. You know what I mean? Will this just be another sort of handshaking opportunity or is this going to be some kind of serious, you know, you're going to have like a mutual defense Agreement no or something? Absolutely not, no right? Way. I can't imagine that. My guess is it'd just be immediate chaos. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> My guess is they'll trade some information. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's probably what it is. Or they'll coordinate their their air defenses or radars, which you can just do over the phone. Or what Saudi Arabia and Israel get to say, "Hey, now we have so much more responsibilities. Hey, yeah. Washington, we need way more from you." Oh, that's a, that's a given. Patron- yeah. <laughs> that is a given. Yeah. So, you know, defend ourselves against Iran just hanging out there. Exactly. Not 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 attempting in my lifetime anything to do with, uh, you know, blowing up Israel. No. Yeah. And Israel's a nuclear power, whether they admit it or not. Of course. Yeah. The Iranians aren't fools. Yeah. They would be foolish to launch a frontal attack on Israel. You know, there have been those reports about um Saudi Arabia working with China on a on a civil nuclear program. Oh, back, and the other, back like, to the 80s. The sort of charitable, perhaps, view on this is is trying to avert that. Don't forget. Getting them into an, although they're already allied with a nuclear armed con- country in the United States, so and, never mind. And Pakistan. Yeah. And the Pakistanis have been very generous in their provision of nuclear-related information, thanks to AQ Khan, um, to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you can't yeah. trust the Saudis on the nuclear issue. No, I wouldn't. No, you really can't. 
The Guardian newspaper, which I used to like and respect. Man, The Guardian has really, really uh, embarrassed itself in the last the heck? Uh, several years. This weekend, they called noted journalist Aaron Maté, quote, the most prolific spreader of disinformation on Syria, unquote. But The Guardian never gave a single example of Aaron's alleged disinformation. They never contacted him for comment, and they never disclosed that the source they were citing was a so-called think tank funded in part by the international arms of the Democratic and Republican parties and the government of Germany. Boy. Hmm. Nice, huh? They also called Aaron, quote, part of a Russia-backed network of Syria conspiracy theorists, unquote, before they went back and dropped the words Russia-backed. They don't even check anymore, no, right? You just it go, up. it's bad. Russia's behind it. Slap it in the headline. Does it need to, does it need to be demonstrated anywhere in the article? Nah, not until somebody notices. Nope. nope. Um, Aaron was very, uh, he, he, was, he was outraged, which I would be too. And he was prolific on this issue on Twitter over the last uh, day or so. Uh, the Guardian never sought to refute any of what he was saying. And then other journalists were jumping in saying, oh, the Guardian did this to me, too. And then they would provide examples. Yeah. yeah. Shocking to I me. I mean, this is the way to do it. If people are saying a thing that you don't like, but you can't actually prove, uh, you know, prove that they are lying about, you just attack them personally or you attack their associates. Exactly. Or you, you know, you attack their associations. You sort of smear them by association and you can distract from the fact that, you know, maybe there is something to what they're saying. This happens with the gray zone Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. Oh, the gray zone has taken it on the chin the last six months in exactly this way. One other reporter uh, who wrote a, a story about children being abused while under the auspices of the home office in the UK uh, posted a statement that the home office made saying this article is riddled with factual errors and inconsistencies. We reject it. Okay, so what what are the factual errors Please and tell inconsistencies? Us. I'd like to, yeah, right. Isn't it in your interest to say, here's what they got, you know, here, this is wrong, this right. particular is wrong, this particular is wrong? And they never did that. Nope. What they did is they attacked the author and said, this guy's an idiot and this guy is a liar. Okay, so let's have a conversation about this. And they never do that. Yeah. They never do that. If they don't like it, they just condemn it. And then Michelle. Oh, I love this story. It was fascinating. Well, I love this story also because if you had <laughs> if you had asked me this, I would have thought I would have thought this was the answer. I didn't know that this was unknown. It would have seemed to be wow. the place to look all the all the whole time. Sa scientists believe they have pinpointed the origin of the Black Death, and it is again un unsurprising if you are interested in this sort of niche geographic area and this sort of niche bit of history but right. unsurprisingly oh northern kyrgyzstan right yeah because plague is endemic there like that's where it comes from it lives in the marmots it lives in the rodent population yes so yeah i would think i would have thought that's where it came from um and they had some other place you can look on a map and it's just like a vague dot like black death here question mark and now it's like moved <laughs> down down several thousand kilometers perhaps um yeah they found it they think they have found it in uh, northern Kyrgyzstan near Issykul, like Issykul, I guess not that, sort of outside of Bishkek. But yeah, that's where, I mean, that's where it remains. That's where you still, people still get plague from well, marmots. The fascinating part of this is they were able to, they, they found, they found a, a, a cemetery of 
bodies of people who had been who had been infected with the Black Death and died, you know, during the plague. Yeah. And um, and they were able to take DNA from the teeth in some of these these skeletons and compare the the DNA of the disease with the DNA from today's de- uh, plague. And it was identical. And they said that they would have expected that it would be different because over the many centuries, it would have changed and adapted and, and you know, it would have done what viruses do. Um, this didn't, which showed then a direct link between the Black Death that wiped out a third of Europe and the plague that we find today in Kyrgyzstan. It's pretty cool. Fascinating. I also, I don't know if I've told this story on the show before, but I've been to Kyrgyzstan. It's very beautiful. I mean, I haven't spent uh, time in all parts of the country, but I spent a bit of time in Bishkek, which is just a great city. And it's so beautiful, right? The mountains outside the city are so beautiful. And so I went for a little like day hike out there. I was walking around by myself. Look at these, you know, gorgeous snow-capped, sharp peaks in the distance and sort of soft green rolling foothills in front of them. And I'm like climbing higher and higher and having a really nice time. And I look over and I see a little marmot. I'm like, oh, oh, that's how how wonderful a a marmot nature here around me. And then immediately thought, oh, no, (laughs) the black plague. Get away from me, beastie. I don't want you to get close to me. Yeah, no. One of the interesting uh, points that this article made was that plague is is everywhere, right? We've got a problem with plague, for example, in New Mexico and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to live in in fleas that live on rats and mice, uh, field mice. And so we've, we've got it. It's just that we have such vast open areas that we don't come into contact with these rodents. So we generally don't get it. Well, and also and you also can a treat it. You know, now. it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a bacteria. Right. It's a bacteria. Not a virus. Not a virus. And you can yeah. treat it pretty easily with antibacterial drugs. So yeah, like everything, right. you know, that is right. Like everything that used to kill people. You treat you pretty once much. You have a treatment or, or a vaccine for it. That's right. You don't have okay. to worry about it as much. One of the things that I found depressing in this article is that they uh, defined the word pestilence. I was like, oh, oh man, yeah. do you not know what pestilence means these days? <laughs> Come on, guys. Oh, my God. It's a pestilence. So the, the, in parentheses, this is an old word that used to, re, you know, refer oh. to disease or whatever, oh. blah, blah, blah. It's like, God, pest, Come, Come on, on, people. Let's bring back pestilence. That's what I want to have happen this week. Well, we are going to get started with our guests. We have the always excellent Dr. Kenneth Surin. We have Wyatt Reed reporting from Columbia. We have Dan Lazar, Salim Adolfo, who's I think going to be a first-time guest. Is that right? Mm-hmm. We We're had- talking about the D.C. DC primary that's happening tomorrow. And also what D.C. Uh, has to genuinely worry about in terms of protecting abortion rights within the city should the right. Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade, as is expected to, uh, you know, at any point in the next 10 days, right? Yes. Because D.C. has less power than states do. Yes, indeed. To protect, you know, to create its own um, governing structure. That's right. And we have uh, Carly Webb. So we are live in D.C. We're going to be back after a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. France received a shock yesterday when President Emmanuel Macron lost his majority in Parliament. His his centrist ensemble coalition fell well short of the 289 seats needed for a majority. Left-wing and far-right-wing parties made dramatic gains. Political analysts say that the country could be paralyzed politically unless Macron is able to negotiate an alliance with other parties. Macron's cabinet ministers are calling the election a shock that will end the president's ability to effectively govern the country. Meanwhile, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said over the weekend that the war in Ukraine could last a decade, but that NATO's continued provision of advanced weapons to Ukraine would make it possible to take back the Donbass from Russian forces. Stoltenberg admitted, though, that many EU and NATO countries are already experiencing war fatigue and that they may not have the wherewithal to keep their countries united against Russia. We're joined by Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst and professor professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Welcome back, Professor. Oh, you're welcome. Professor, give us your thoughts on yesterday's French parliamentary election. Marine Le Pen's far-right National Rally Party, which normally gets about 20% in national votes, had just eight seats in the last parliament. As of today, it has 89 seats. Its previous historic high was 35 seats in 1986. Now the party is a force to be reckoned with politically. It did so well that it now has the power to launch parliamentary investigations, to speak on the floor of parliament, and to be represented on committees. It also gets governmental funding for its next election, and it gets debt relief from previous elections. It also... uh, uh, it also allows uh, Marine Le Pen to have a, a, a platform to uh, address the public that she otherwise may not have had. Is this a fluke, do you think, or or is the face of French politics changing? Um, it's very difficult to say because, you know, one uh, swallow doth not a summer make. Um, <laughs> it is significant. I don't want to underplay that. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think we have to see what the policy fallout is of these results. Um, will it be easy or uh, relatively easy for Macron to uh, implement uh, his policies? It's going to be much more difficult. There is no doubt mm-hmm. uh, about that. Um, he will have to form alliances uh, probably with uh, a right-wing party called uh, Les uh, Républicains, uh, who were under power when Nicolas Nicolas Sarkozy was the president. Right. Uh, But it's expected to hold about 75 seats. So I think his most obvious tack is to move to the right uh, in order to accommodate uh, the bushes of uh, Sarkozy's uh, party. And then, of course, um, there will be the possibility of attracting a few other centrists. So I think he can rule, um, but he will have to make these uh, tactical alliances 
Um, he will find his agenda, which is basically a neoliberal one, much more difficult to implement. Um, but, you know, these uh, power-sharing arrangements have existed in France before. Yes. Um, the, it's called cohabitation in French. <laughs> um, and I think the last one was in 1997, uh, to 2002, um, when Jacques Chirac was the president, uh, and the Socialist Party under uh, Lionel Jospin uh, was uh, Jospin was the prime minister. Right. So basically, what happened? But you see, uh, the difference here is that Chirac, uh, compared to um, c compared to Macron, was much more of a centrist. Uh, I mean, I know Macron was a centrist, but uh, shall we say much more of an apolitical mm -hmm. than uh, Macron is. Um, of course, he was notoriously corrupt, even from the time when Chirac was mayor uh, of Paris. Um, so I think as long as the goodies were flowing into his own bank account, um, <laughs> it, he really wasn't uh, ideologically driven uh, in the way that Macron uh, seems to be. So Chirac was happy to make, to let Jaspin uh, basically run the country. Um, I don't think Macron is going to allow uh, a prime minister that amount of leeway. Um, but, you know, we shall see. We shall see what uh, alliances he makes. We shall see what policy adjustments he makes. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we can take it from there. I wanted to ask uh, about the possibility that Macron could come to an agreement with any of the left of center parties. His party lost 100 seats and is 44 seats short of a majority. Uh, as you mentioned, he's going to have to form a coalition, a coalition if he hopes to govern. Is there any, does he get anything out of a coalition with socialists, with Greens, uh, with uh, Melancon, uh, with the communists even? Is, is it possible to come to an agreement with any of those parties or those factions? I think highly, it's, it's highly unlikely. Uh -huh. um, because, first of all, he will have to make policy adjustments to incorporate aspects of their agenda. And um, so far, they have made gains, uh, so why should they dilute their, their agenda? Right. It's, you know, that's the stance that they, they will take. Um, and the, uh, the other question is, um, if he can make uh, deals with those to the right of his party, I think that will be preferable to him uh, because he's more likely to retain key elements of his neoliberal um, agenda by forming alliances with them than he is with forming alliances on the left of, of the left of center or the left. Uh, He'll try the right first. Uh, and see how far he... Right. That makes sense to me. ...as a second option, 
he will see if he needs to make further compromises and see uh, if he can lure uh, the, the number of left-wing um, seats that he needs to mm-hmm. uh, to govern. If this election proved anything, it was that the French electorate is split and that the French people politically seem to be restless. Newly reelected presidents in France are usually given, not always, but usually given a rubber stamp parliament to work with. What happened here? Why do you think this was so vastly different than what we've seen in most cases in the past? I think uh, a major consideration here is the fact uh, that the turnout was one of uh, those that were uh, the turnout was I think one of the lowest historically uh-huh. uh, in a French parliamentary election. It was less than fifty percent. So it would seem that there is another factor in play here, which is uh, what about the uh, the more than fifty percent who didn't bother to vote? Um, what are they going to do? Uh, are they going to remain silent for a long time? Uh, how long will they remain silent for? Um, and then, of course, there is the question. Um, this this new configuration uh, in the French parliamentary system uh, seems interesting in one major regard. Now, the area where Marine Le Pen uh, got most of her seats was in the north of France, uh, which is, of course, the industrial part of France. Mm-hmm. It's undergoing deindustrialization, like many uh, of the um, mass industrial regions right. in Europe uh, and the rest of the industrialized world. Um, so she got most of her seats there. But most of the populist unrest that we saw uh, on the, the on the streets, led by the so-called yellow jackets, um, who, of course, uh, if they have any policy positions at all, uh, could be labeled anarchistic. So yeah. really, the two political forces that were strong in the north of France, uh, the yellow jackets, um, who are certainly to the left of Marine Le Pen, and Marine Le Pen herself. So there is no way that these two groupings uh, represent or identify with the same political interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is going on there? Well, clearly, this new uh, setup where you have, uh, if anything, the far left and the far right um, achieving uh, political visibility in an area of deindustrialization is a sign that there is if, if you want, a breakup of the old stabilities. Uh, so it's an interesting time, uh, as you indicate. It is um, relatively new, but we don't know what the shakeout mm-hmm. will be from, mm-hmm. from all of this. Uh, I would say let's see how far uh, Macron goes with the first step uh, or the first few steps he takes in implementing his agenda, see the response to that, and see what adjustments he makes in response to those responses. And then um, we can get a clearer picture 
of what is emerging in France. There seems to be, for the moment, uh, a move to the extremes, yes. a, a hollowing out of the political centre. Um, but how long, uh, in the longer term, uh, that will be, and how deeply uh, will this transformation uh, move towards uh, what its depths will be, um, we don't know yet. The Economist had an interesting piece today saying that unlike the Scandinavian countries, Germany and the Netherlands, France doesn't have a tradition of parliamentary compromise and that there's a likelihood of of political paralysis. Um, Normally, what would happen in that case is that President Macron would call a snap election, perhaps even in just a couple of months. Do you think that's a possibility? And if he were to do so, would it change anything? Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I think it is highly unlikely that this will happen in two months Uh because the first thing he will do is to form his alliances. And those are going to take uh, several weeks, uh, if not months. Uh, And then if that turns out to be impossible, uh, he will go to the country and say, um, you know, Really, the situation is unworkable. We have to go back to the drawing board, and you have to give me uh, a mandate of a different kind, because otherwise the country will be ungovernable. If he simply uh, calls a snap election in order to uh, uh, gain seats, without trying to form compromises with the other parties. This will be seen as a move that is opportunistic, uh, and it'll be too risky for him to do that. Oh, yeah. What he has to do first is uh, an attempt at alliance formation, and then, uh, depending on how that works out, uh, call for a fresh mandate. Uh, that is the scenario in which he won't be seen as someone who uh, is simply trying to uh, pad his parliamentary envelope. as it. Mm-hmm. Um, So I don't think it'll materialize in two months' time. It may materialize in the time after that. Professor, I want to switch over to the Russia-Ukraine war. Would you give us your thoughts on the likelihood of a continued united Western front against Russia? Um, At least for the United States, this is turning into a very expensive prospect, and public opinion in Europe seems to be slipping. If NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is correct, and this war drags on for years, uh, how long does it take for for public opinion to turn? And what does that mean for for congressional support um, for these these multi-billion dollar uh, arms projects? Again, it's it's difficult to... Uh, make firm predictions about that. Uh, we know that there is opposition on the part of some libertarian Republicans in this party, um, Rand Paul being the most prominent among Indeed. Uh, to further assistance for the Ukraine. But, uh, you know, there are many districts uh, with, uh, if you like, factories that produce weapons for uh, manufacturers like Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas, uh, Grumman, etc. Um, and, you know, uh, more money for weapons uh, will obviously 
not be looked upon with disfavor in these districts. So a lot of it will depend not simply on the sheer sums of money that Biden is prepared to spend, right. uh, but the uh, the way the money is carved up and the directions in which uh, it will take when it is disbursed. And so that will be uh, a major consideration. Uh, what about fatigue? Well, you know, I think there are increased signs of fatigue uh, in Europe. The the opinion polls showing support for the war in France and Germany uh, and even the the UK uh, are not, the figures are not as high in favor of the war as Mm -hmm. they used to be. So, but of course, you see, there are changes here. First of all, Macron uh, knows he'll be in power for the next five years, uh, give or take a mishap of major proportions. Um, Scholz, the German, the German chancellor, uh, who's not had a good war, uh, as they say, um, basically will put domestic interests ahead ahead of right. war. Uh, because um, if his position on foreign affairs is somewhat precarious, then he has to shore up his domestic base. So that'll be his prior, priority. And then, of course, Boris Johnson, um, there are two major by-elections in the United Kingdom on Thursday, which uh, he, he's expected to lose one, mm-hmm. possibly lose two. And given his uh, troubles over the so-called Partygate uh, incident. Yes. Uh, he could be gone uh, in a matter of months. So um, we, we, we have to see uh, basically what transpires primarily on the domestic fronts in European countries. Uh, the further the war recedes from the forefront of public attention, the more likely the leaders in European countries will have to look to their domestic agendas in order to bolster their positions. I should say, too, that there's breaking news from the New York Times that the Israeli government has just collapsed. Uh, Lawmakers voted to dissolve parliament and uh, new elections will be held. These will be the fifth round of national elections in the last three years. And can you imagine the prospect of facing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu again? Good grief. Professor, uh, I want to ask you finally about Finland and Sweden. Delegations from Finland and Sweden are meeting again today with Turkish officials to discuss uh, NATO membership. The Turks have been clear that they are a no vote. Uh, Do you see the Turkish position changing in the absence of Sweden returning Turkish and Kurdish dissidents to Turkey? You know, I think basically what we're going to see is the standoff that has prevailed up to now. Um, Both sides have to be seen to want to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is the uh, the talk-talk phase. I don't think there will be any finalized agreement uh, between those countries. I don't think Sweden will return 
its Kurdish refugees, and I don't see Erdogan uh, budging on the uh, uh, the demand that he's made that these refugees, who are labelled terrorists by him, right. um, will be uh, that he is going to be flexible on that demand. That's going to happen. It's just going to be jaw-jaw uh, and talk-talk. Uh, and th- that'll be it for the foreseeable future. I think that is exactly right. I think that is exactly what we're looking at here. Well, thank you, Professor Kenneth Surin. He is a political and foreign affairs analyst, professor emeritus of literature, and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. A political bombshell took place in Colombia yesterday with the presidential election of leftist leader Gustavo Petro. Petro is a former rebel and a longtime senator who uh, has promised to take Colombia on a vastly different political and economic path. He's promised to lessen Colombia's reliance on fossil fuels, to protect Colombia's jungles from deforestation, to tax the wealthy, and to expand social programs to aid the ever-increasing number of Colombians living in poverty. We're joined by Sputnik News analyst Wyatt Reed. You can find more of his work on Twitter at WyattReed13. Welcome back, Wyatt. Hey, John. Good to be here. So glad to have you. Uh, th- this has to be a really exciting time to be in uh, in Colombia. You're in Colombia right now. Petro defeated construction magnet Rodolfo Hernandez by a margin of about 52-47. That has never happened before. Uh, what were the factors that led to this victory for the left? Well, that's right, John, and, and great question. This is a historic moment, as you described, the first time in Colombia's history that the left has won power. There are a number of factors here. Uh, obviously, the, the top one is always going to be economic, pretty much anywhere you go in the world. Uh, People can't uh, function if they can't eat. And that's the case right now in Colombia. People simply cannot eat. You talk to people who are uh, looking to buy food, and they describe the price of potatoes having shot up 10 or 20 times uh, in a matter of a couple years. And and that's a staple of the Colombian diet. People are eating potatoes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, you talk about the violence, this sort of senseless, constant violence, this, uh, you know, militarization and, and sort of the uh, question that creeps into people's minds when they wonder how are there billions of dollars to militarize the police, to militarize the army, to uh, fund all these paramilitaries. But there doesn't seem to be any money for the kind of priorities that pushed Gustavo Petro into power, the promises that he made about uh, public education, uh, right, uh, about free higher education, about uh, public health care system, uh, opening that up to the vast majority of Colombians, uh, you know, Colombia being one of the most unequal, if not the most unequal countries in the entire hemisphere, 
these are promises that uh, meant right. a lot to a lot of people, and that's something you can see reflected in the results of yesterday's vote. As you said, the country is facing serious problems. Poverty is at its worst point in many years. Illegal logging is causing terrible deforestation in the Colombian Amazon. More Colombians than ever are emigrating to the United States for economic opportunity. How do you think Petro will begin to address these problems? In and of themselves, they seem to be incredibly daunting. And then to have all of them at the same time that have to be addressed. How will he do that? Absolutely. Well, he's proposed uh, kind of a big tent uh, solution. And he's very much, uh, you know, as opposed to maybe more hardcore anti-imperialist governments that he's distanced himself from in Venezuela, for example. Uh, he's not proposing any kind of uh, radical economic um, uh, overhaul of the system. He's certainly not proposing that they expropriate properties and and turn to some kind of socialist uh, governance system. You know, he spoke in his victory speech last night about the need for a capitalismo desarrollado, a developed capitalism, right? Uh, as opposed to the kind of feudalistic system that Colombians live in. Uh, he he is opening. Uh, he's extending an invitation to his uh, opposition. There was very little resentment uh, or anger in the victory speech last night, but rather uh, an invitation to come participate in this new uh, Colombia that they want to be want to see it more become more inclusive, uh, both in terms of identity and in terms of uh, class. So uh, where exactly he right. starts, uh, it's it's hard to say, right? Uh, as as they very clearly laid out, this isn't uh, this isn't the end of you know revolution in Colombia. This is the beginning. This is where all the hard work starts. Uh, and of course, they're going to be facing uh, extensive pushback from uh, right wing and from an oligarchy that is very much yeah. uh, not used to having share power. Uh, very resentful of the forces that come uh, and try to take a little bit back for themselves. Uh, just just to give you sort of a sense of, of what this means for people, though, I had the kind of the luck, basically, to uh, to interview a woman named Yeni Alejandro Medina, who is the mother of a student named Dylan Cruz, who was uh, shot in the head by U.S.-funded anti-riot police Ooh. three years ago uh, while peacefully protesting and became a resistance symbol for students uh, and for uh, anti-neoliberal demonstrators uh, throughout Colombia. Um, and I spoke to her yesterday uh, af after she had voted uh, at Colombia's biggest voting station, Corferias, where half a million people came out to vote yesterday. Uh, and he said, uh, or she said, sorry, his mother said that Esmad shot her son in the head for marching peacefully. And so now I'm voting. And my vote is for Petro because he is the hope for us, the mothers of the victims of violence. So there's no more impunity in these wow. cases of police violence against our kids. And for uh, and also because of our hope for a better country where these attacks, these murders of our children don't happen any longer. And imagine my surprise when four hours later at the victory speech, as, as Gustavo Petro is speaking, uh, she appears on stage next to him. Uh, and and he hugs her and he he gives her the microphone so that she could explain exactly you know mid victory speech what this 
this victory meant for average Colombians. And, you know, she said, in the name of my son, Dylan, who was another victim of this country, in the name of all the victims of the false positives, those are the 10,000 plus people who were murdered uh, by mm -hmm. Colombian police and military in the hopes of receiving compensation in the form of cash prizes or gift cards. Uh, she said, all the victims of this government and those before it, I raised my voice for my son so there would be justice. And I welcome the new president because the hope for justice for all of us is in you. In you, hope lies for us, the poor, the needy. The black, the white, the rich, the poor, hope for all of us lies in you. Welcome to Colombia, to our new country, Mr. President. And the crowd absolutely went wild because this is a really meaningful, emotionally laden moment, uh, not just for Yeni Alejandra Medina, but for so many people who are like her, so many people who have faced violence at the hands of uh, state-backed death squads uh, or the police right. and military themselves. Uh, all of these people, you know, regardless of whether or not uh, Gustavo Petro is some kind of hardcore anti-imperialist revolutionary, he is a meaningful and clear alternative to the lifetime of rule by neoliberal oligarchy. You raise something that I think is very important, and that is what the reaction will be to this election by the right wing. Uh, the right wing in in Colombia has been very important politically over the years. The Colombian military, for example, is decidedly right wing. The Colombian national police, uh, they're both very close to the U.S. military. They're close to the CIA, to the DEA. Um, should we expect that to change in any way? Uh, what about cooperation on counter-narcotics or counter-terrorism? Or conversely, do you see the United States interfering now in Colombia because of this election? Well, I think you see the United States in a permanent state of interference in Colombia uh, and in much of Latin America, virtually the entirety of Latin America. So we know just from what Petro has said on the campaign trail that a big portion of this kind of anti-U.S. resentment comes from the policies, uh, the drug policies, right, these eradication policies. The United States comes in, and especially under President Biden, uh, or rather went before he was right. president, um, this, this kind of uh, Plan Colombia, which he said he, he basically created, he took credit for in one interview. That's right. Uh, which pumped billions of dollars into the Colombian military uh, and police forces like SMAD that I mentioned uh, murdered Dylan Cruz uh, earlier. Uh, and they pumped the, they gave him all this money to essentially go out into the woods and declare war on the coca farmers who are growing uh, basically the only crop that, that will allow them to survive economically. Um, and they dump uh, tons and tons of glyphosate all over them, leading to massive uh, environmental damage and massive uh, health ramifications for the people who are exposed to it, obviously. So Petro has called for an right. end to this style of uh, drug, supposed drug eradication. You know, we should point out that while the U.S. has been spending billions of dollars on this, uh, coca cultivation in Colombia has skyrocketed. It is by far the biggest producer of cocaine anywhere in the world, um, as compared especially to Venezuela or Bolivia, where you have left-wing governments uh, who have somehow not had these same issues and clamping down on cocaine production. Uh, 
but but Petro spoke, you know, not in an antagonistic way to the U.S., but he did say last night that there needs to be a new relationship with the United States. Right? We can't. Uh, he didn't. He didn't use phrases like neo-colony that um, some of us might use, but he hinted at them. Uh, he hinted at the way that Colombia has traditionally been uh, managed from afar. And even, you know, phrases like Colombia for the Colombians, uh, they imply a rejection of this longstanding sort of uh, servile relationship, sort of vassal vassal kind of relationship that mm -hmm. Colombia has long had right. to endure with the United States. How much of that will change and whether or not that will come overnight I don't know, but just the fact that he is he is out there pushing uh, these criticisms and promising to restore relations with Venezuela, especially, uh, shows that there uh, there is an alternative here to the way that Colombians have been doing business for a while. And I hope uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I, I hope that the Petro administration embraces that. Why Colombia and Venezuela have long had very tense relations, and there have even been several military skirmishes on the border. Um, will that change? I saw today a, a picture uh, several years old of President Petro with Hugo Chavez. Uh, how how would you expect relations between Colombia and Venezuela to change now? Do you see this election ushering in a new kind of relationship between these two countries? I think it almost has to. When you look at the relationship that Venezuela and Colombia currently have, it's almost impossible for it to get worse. You know, they're in a state of basically proxy yeah. war almost. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so while Gustavo Petro has publicly criticized uh, Venezuela, uh, and especially I think he's been in a position where he he's basically forced to. Colombia has been dealing with millions of Venezuelan immigrants uh, over the past few years as part of the uh, Venezuelan economic collapse, which was spurred on in large part by U.S. sanctions, especially coming after 2019. But, uh, but we, we just look at how, how, for example, President Maduro is responding to this. He issued a statement of congratulations, very resounding, uh, hopeful sort of statement. I congratulate Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez for their historic victory in the presidential election in Colombia. The will of the Colombian people who came out to defend the path of democracy and peace was heard. New times are in sight for this sister country. So very much a change in rhetoric from how uh, Maduro mm -hmm. would typically talk about the Colombian government. You would talk about them being puppets of the U.S. empire. Uh, here you see a very, very clear-cut distinction between the type of language being used by the Venezuelan government uh, to refer to Colombia. And I certainly hope, and I think the region's residents hope as well that this is a sign of things to come, uh, because certainly if you want to talk about seriously addressing any of the issues that come from the uh, the lack of diplomatic relations, you know, the, the migration crisis, the drug smuggling, uh, all of this stuff you can't seriously address without having actual formal diplomatic relations. So just getting that done will be a big first step in terms of reimagining new relationships uh, between Colombia and Venezuela and between the countries of the whole continent. Um, as we especially look and see, you know, sort of the summit of Americas, what an utter failure that was. I think there's a uh, quite a bit of appetite oh, yeah. in the region for relationships that are built um, out of the mutual self-interest and are not 
uh, beholden to the interests of some third party uh, outside of the continent. Uh, Wyatt, this is a little further afield, but I know that you've also followed developments in Ethiopia. Over the weekend, more than 200 people were massacred. Some some reports are saying as many as 230 people were massacred, um, allegedly by the uh, Oromo Liberation Army. It, it's they allegedly attacked this village and uh, and killed these people. The OLA denies that. It was the group that perpetrated the massacre. It's allied with the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which also has been accused of attacking both civilians and government officials. And of course, the government is accused of doing exactly the same thing. There seems to be a real possibility of a civil war coming to Ethiopia. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. I think what you're seeing in that region might be kind of akin to what you are seeing in Donetsk. Uh, for example, and sort of the, the oh. breakaway now now Russian uh, aligned region where you see uh, the Ukrainians effectively uh, recognizing that there is no military solution from their perspective. There's no way to achieve within traditional military means uh, a, a normal goal. So they are switching to more terroristic kind of tactics, attacking civilian targets. Uh, basically doing whatever they can to 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 create uh, anger, to create outrage, to create fear uh, in population. Um, and, you know, thankfully, for, for, from their perspective, they have a number of mainstream media outlets that are happy, the, or that seem to be pretty happy to, uh, to kind of wander that perspective, to push those talking points from, from uh, on their behalf. Uh, I haven't had the time to check out exactly the nitty gritty of, of what happened with this specific attack. Obviously, it, it's quite horrifying. Uh, but I think a civil war in Ethiopia would be of great benefit to a number of foreign powers uh, who are seeking to maintain their economic hegemony over Africa and over the Horn of Africa, specifically pushing back on uh, things like the tripartite agreement that exists now between uh, Somalia and uh, and um, Ethiopia uh, and Sudan. Yeah. Uh, these kinds of, of solutions between countries basically uh, pushing their own solutions, coming up with these ideas for themselves, not uh, going abroad, not asking the EU, not asking the French, and not asking the Americans for permission, but saying, these are our problems, we're going to work them out ourselves. Uh, those kind of ideas, uh, I think, were perceived as, as a threat to economic interests of people who call the shots in those regions right now. And so I think that is a big part of the reason why you see this uh, uptick in ethnic violence. Okay, we've got about two minutes left, and I have to ask you, if you if you feel any cause for optimism uh, in anything that you're seeing in Ethiopia, I think you're absolutely right that there are major powers that want to exert influence uh, in the region, whether it's the United States or Saudi Arabia or any number of other countries. Uh, is there is there any reason why we should be optimistic? Is there any way? to head this off before something terrible happens? Because we're not looking just at, at war right now. We're looking at the prospects of, of yet another famine that some people are saying could be akin to what we saw in 1985. Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 
I'm an optimist. I always try to find some reason to look for the silver lining in a given situation. I think from the perspective of, of a lot of people in the Horn of Africa, yes, it's, it's a very dark time. Uh, there is certainly, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, we're past the point of no return. Uh, there are still there are still people. There are still uh, important voices that are out there that are working uh, to create brotherhood, right? And and to instead of in place of animosity, instead of ethnic tensions, instead of inciting violence, that want to preserve peace between the communities. Uh, these may not be the voices that are going to be heard on mainstream media, but there is a, a broad sense from what I get within the Ethiopian community that. Uh, people are tired of war. People are tired of yeah. of spending, of, of watching their kids get blown up in, in these kinds of situations. We have to leave it there. But thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Wyatt Reed. Thank you so much for joining us. You can hear more or read more from Wyatt Reed on Twitter at WyattReed13. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. Doing a little bit of globe hopping here, where you are going to return to Europe and to the topic of U.S. sanctions and what they're actually supposed to do. We are going to look at who has taken power in the Philippines and ask why on earth we are seeing a repeat of some of the family dynasties that we are seeing in that country. And uh, we're going to talk about the United States and uh, the weekend full of mass shootings that we had as usual and talk about, you know, how do we how do we understand the uh, really tragic level of violence that we tolerate and also understand these sort of cycles in which it becomes incredibly important and reported upon and then and then drops away? We are going to try and look at both of those things uh, in a responsible way. Joining us for all of these conversations is journalist and writer Dan Lazar. Dan, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I want to talk for a minute about the news that Russia has surpassed Saudi Arabia to become China's biggest oil supplier. Russia's crude oil exports to China rose by 28 percent between April and May, hitting a record. India is also buying way more Russian oil and coal. And to me, there are two notable things here. One is that there remains a market for Russian energy products, right? Europe is trying to get away from them. But as long as China and India and much of the rest of the world hasn't signed on to Western sanctions, Russia will find other buyers for these commodities and Russia's economy will keep ticking along. The other notable thing here, though, is though Russia was China's biggest supplier last month, more revenue went to Saudi Arabia because sanctions have made Russian oil cheaper. And so, again, you look at this sanctions regime that we have enacted and who is benefiting most. You could say it's China, right, who we are supposed to be, you know, in in mortal competition with. Right. So we have China benefiting from getting a ton of uh, much cheaper 
crude oil than it would have been able to otherwise. In the meantime, we have Europe struggling to stockpile the fuel it wants for the winter. And I just wonder if all of this should be telling us something, Dan. Well, I, I think it is telling us something. It's telling us the, the sanction policy was really wildly misconceived mm-hmm. when it was uh, you know, first inaugurated. Um, I mean, I mean, both Russia and China are, are, are benefiting. I mean, I mean, China's, I mean, Russia's got, you know, chief exports of all risen in price due to inflation, mm-hmm. uh, which is not caused by the war in, in the Ukraine, but is certainly aggravated by it. So China, so Russia is actually making out quite well because like, you know, things like uh, gas, uh, oil, uh, uh, grain, um, uh, uh, phosphate fertilizers, et cetera, mm-hmm. are all rising very strongly in price. Uh, and therefore, uh, 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 Russia's revenues are rising as well. It's, um, you know, it, the, the, the ruble is, uh, is strong. Uh, the, uh, the countries, you know, the, the vital signs have stabilized. Um, you know, uh, inflation is falling. Uh, industrial production is, uh, is rising. Um, and uh, and all those confident predictions, you know, back in February that that sanctions would soon bring Russia to to its knees, that the economy would stop because Russians no longer had you know Visa and Mastercards, mm-hmm. um, have been proven completely false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I think that I think what's probably happening is that Russia may be discounting oil to uh, to China. And um, and India as a way of keeping them on its side, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but China is benefiting as well from those discounts, and um, and uh, it just goes to show how how poorly conceived these policies were, how how fundamentally incompetent um, uh, you know Western policy has been. I want to ask. I mean, I. I... I think I that I agree with you, but I also, you know, when we see something uh, go off the rails this spectacularly, I think, you know, Joe Biden campaigned as as being the guy with experience, right? The guy who knew what he was doing, particularly the guy with foreign policy experience. And his administration is stocked with people who have been around a long time. And it's not like in, you know, a bunch of the other, you know, Olaf Schultz has been around for a very long time, sort of waiting in the wings. So you think... Did they really do they continue to to uh, screw things up this massively? Are they can they really have been in power for that long and be this bad at predicting the consequences of their actions? Or is something else going on here? And are we are we, you know, being given one sort of stated objective, but really we see these sanctions achieving another objective? Well, you know, uh, this incompetence is not new. I mean, Joe Biden was the guy who, who essentially you know, um, uh, help pave the way in the Senate for the uh, Senate for- Foreign Relations Committee chairman, uh, help pave, pave the way for the U.S. invasion of, of Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. I mean, he ran the hearings, he handpicked the, the witnesses, he made sure that, that there would be a chorus of approval for the, uh, for the projected invasions, et cetera. You know, he defended them to the hilt. He only recanted when he was offered the vice presidency by, you know, by Obama. And then he said, they admitted that maybe he was wrong. Tony Blinken was his assistant. Tony Blinken was yeah. deeply involved in this. Um, and, um, and Jake Sullivan was, you know, was a, a close assistant to uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Jake Sullivan wrote a famous, a notorious memo in uh, in 2011, about the uh, about NATO uh, intervention in Libya, 
in mm. which he talked about how how Hillary Clinton had had shepherded this policy from the, from the beginning. He said he said this policy has 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 HRC's name written all over it, mm-hmm. and the policy turned out to be completely disastrous, completely disastrous. You know, so 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 the the, the record of incompetence you know didn't start you know on January twentieth. 2021, no. when when Joe Biden entered office, it goes back a full uh, 20 years before that, and the U.S. is repeating the same mistakes. These are the people who are these are the people who who make their main selling point their experience. You know, <laughs> it's just they they think ex, you know experience is sort of a shorthand for knowing how to do things and doing things well. But no, it's just it's just experience. <laughs> You've just been there a long time. You apparently haven't learned anything. It's it's incredible to me that this is the you know this is what they can continue to trot out to prevent uh, new ideas from from having any kind of chance at getting close to power in the United States. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I mean, Joe Biden's experience is like. Is a is a is a multi-decade experience in screwing up. I mean, <laughs> you know, so so you know so so you know so 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 he came in he came into office you know promising to bring that experience to bear, and so surprise surprise there are more foul ups. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, Joe Biden's added you know his highly provo- provocative behavior towards Russia, his insult. He went out of his way to use insulting language to Putin. And then he was like, you know, then he's surprised when things completely blew up. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get Putin off the hook, believe me. But, uh, but nonetheless, though, you know, I mean, I mean, Biden did everything he could to egg him on. Yeah. And then he claims to be surprised, you know, when, when, when Putin launched his spell, a special military operation yeah. uh, back in February. It just makes no sense. You know, when you say like not trying to let Vladimir Putin or anyone else off the hook, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, we we have been talking on this show to people who have set, you know made predictions that this is what would happen with you know w- with this sanctions regime, and you might you know. Uh, you might agree with some of these people's point of view. You might disagree with with their point of view. But if their analysis co- is consistently correct, it seems like you should try listening to them. You know, and instead, it's it's sort of more about what kind of what kind of rhetoric do you offer rather than are, you know are you are you ever accurately predicting the consequences of your actions? No, uh, the, uh, the American political establishment has always been very uncomfortable with uh, with debate. And uh, it's never more. It's, it's never been more so than it is now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, now you just simply just cannot say things that go counter to the official line in Washington without being, you know, shut down, canceled, you know, uh, expelled from polite discourse, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But but yeah, but the but the sanctions policy is is backfiring wildly. Yeah. I mean, the the the. You know, it's not the cause of inflation, but it certainly is aggravating inflation. Mm-hmm. And that inflation is, is, is having catastrophic effects across the board mm-hmm. in the U.S., in the EU, in the third world, most especially. Uh, and, you know, and, and yet somehow Joe Biden wants us to believe that it's all Putin's fault. Yeah. Uh, by the way, a notion that, that, that Vladimir Putin Heaped ridicule on last week at the uh, at the St. Petersburg economic uh, economic conference. Yeah, uh, you know, and and but it, it it is worth it is ridiculous. It is worthy of ridicule. Yeah, because it's clear that 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 inflation did not start out of the blue 
on February 24th. It's been building for, it had been building for more than a year previously. Yeah. Stop giving the guy so much material. I also, <laughs> I want to ask you also uh, how concerned we should be about this dust up over Kaliningrad, right? Kaliningrad is this Russian enclave yeah, on the Baltic yeah, Sea between yeah. Lithuania and Poland. It is Russia, right? It is Russian territory. Uh, but Lithuania has decided it's going to ban EU sanctioned goods from transiting its territory to go from Russia to Russia. Uh, Moscow is very angry. It says it violates longstanding cargo transit agreements. Uh, you know, Kaliningrad is not going to, you know, be blockaded. Russia can still supply it by sea. But the bigger issue is whether this creates another possible flashpoint between Russia and NATO, because, of course, Lithu Lithuania and Poland are, are members of NATO. How worried should we be? You know, there, there's not a nice history of, like, you know, little little places that people forget about in Europe uh, suddenly becoming extremely important. I think we should be we should be very worried. I mean, it's a it's a very big and very provocative step. Mm -hmm. uh, Gabrielis uh, Landsbergis is the uh, foreign minister of, uh, of Lithuania, and he, sing he single-handedly provoked a, a first-class brawl with China uh, last year. Mm. Uh, um, uh, and this is very serious. I mean, I mean, essentially, it amounts to placing a blockade on Kaliningrad which, as you say, is part of Russia. Mm -hmm. It's a. Uh, it's you know, Russia would not be incorrect in classifying it as a highly aggressive action mm -hmm. that that is that that could amount to a to an act of war. I mean, so do 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 they really want to go in that direction? And does little Lithuania, you know, want to provoke a great big conflict? Uh, I mean, you know, with a with Russia. This is madness. I, if you asked me, I would say Li <laughs> Lithuania might, but the rest of NATO, I think, won't want to. Right. So, I mean, but this is the second, you know, we, we had uh, Sergei Lavrov's plane blocked from uh, traveling to Serbia earlier. That was, you know, not I think probably not as, uh, you know, Lavrov was upset. There was a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, angry words coming out of Moscow again, saying this is outrageous. You're blocking countries from um you know, from executing their foreign policy. This would seem to be a sort of, uh, you know, an upgrade from that, you know, physically blocking Russia from from getting goods to Russian territory. Uh, yeah. And so you wonder how many more how many more, uh, you know, sort of insults and violations like this can happen before there is uh, an unpredictable response. Yes, I mean, I, I agree. And when, and when you say that, that NATO, NATO is opposed to these kinds of highly provocative mm. actions, the problem with NATO and the problem with the EU, these these kinds of these consensus ruled organizations, as they wind up being beholden to their their smallest partners. Mm. So Lithuania, a country of a few million people, you know, suddenly finds itself in a position to whipsaw NATO mm -hmm. and to maneuver it into this highly, you know, provocative stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Mm. It shouldn't happen. But the Baltic states, you know, are actually being enabled to 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 carry out these kinds of behaviors. So so if Joe Biden was 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 competent, which is of course a, a, a an unwarranted assumption, yeah. but if, if Joe Biden was competent, he would get on the phone to Lance Burgess and say, like, no, absolutely not, stop it immediately. We already have one war on our hand, our hands. Mm -hmm. One war is enough. We don't need a second front opening up. 
but the U.S. finds itself unable to do it because it, it is continually stirring up anti-Russian venom mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, mm -hmm. and it finds itself unable to turn the faucet off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so... So it's um it's it's a it's a highly dangerous situation. I mean, I, I I really think and I trust that 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 Lithuania will back off. It'll just be a momentary, you know, uh, tiff that'll go away. I I hope that's the case. I trust that's the case. You know, I, I think that 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 good sense will prevail, but there is certainly a chance that it won't. And yeah. if it doesn't, then there is gonna be hell to pay. Yeah, we're really, uh, you know, dancing with catastrophe here. I also, uh, before we get to some of the violence in the United States that I want to talk about, you know, we, we've sort of been ignoring uh, this big election in the Philippines uh, that occurred earlier this month, last month. But now uh, we have the progeny of Ferdinand Barcos and Rodrigo Duterte, you know, respectively, not a combination, taking power in the Philippines yesterday. We have Bong Bong Marcos and Sarah Duterte sworn in as president and vice president. And I, for once, I enjoyed a line in NPR about the event. Uh, it wrote, Marcos Jr. and Sarah Duterte campaigned on a vague platform of national unity. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's pretty much, I guess that is pretty much it. I was really surprised to see how popular uh, Rodrigo Duterte remained in the Philippines for, for a pretty long time, despite his uh, brutal war on drugs that probably has amounted to just uh, broad scale crimes against humanity. Um, having a, a Marcos back in power has got to feel like a slap in the face to at least some Filipinos. And I just wonder what we should interpret uh, about this victory of people with big, very controversial names uh, attached to them and, and not much of a platform to speak of. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I really, it really sounds as if I'm a, a member of the Blame America First Club. But again, <laughs> but again the U.S. is 99.8% to blame here. The, the drug war in the, the Philippines has reached proportions that is absolutely beyond imagination. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the more the police clamp down on drugs, the more the, more the country overflows with the illegal drug trade, the more violent it becomes, which leads to a classic vicious cycle mm -hmm. in which the drug gangs you know, rev up the cops clamp down, the drug gangs escalate even more, the cops escalate, et cetera, et cetera. And the ultimate result, the guy like Duterte, who adopted a shoot-on-sight policy, essentially. Yeah, just awful. And, and which I think that the, the body count was 27,000 people mm -hmm. who were essentially executed with, you know, under, with, with, under the most, on the most spurious legal grounds. Now, the reason I blame this on the United States is that, you know, is that the U.S. took over the Philippines in 1901. And before then, there was a, a minor opium presence in the Philippines. It was almost entirely in the hands of the, of the Chinese community. And, and opium was the Chinese laborers, laborers what, excuse the expression, Dago Red was to Italian laborers wow. in the United States. Okay, mm -hmm. and wherever Italian workers with them went, went they took their bottles of red wine, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, and wherever Chinese laborers went, they took their 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 pipes of opium. 
Okay, that was their drug of choice. And it was actually totally under control, little, little spillover into the Filipino population. Then the U.S., beginning around 1906, clamped down, uh, uh, imposed a very energetic uh, program of opium suppression. And what happened? There was smuggling, there was crime, there was a black, uh, a black market, mm -hmm. and there was a dramatic increase in opiate consumption. And then after World War II, starting in the 60s, Nixon sort of like, you know, sort of, you know announces war on drug, drugs actually in 1971. Mm -hmm. He funneled millions of dollars to Ferdinand Marcos to combat drugs. Mm -hmm. And what happened? The same pattern again and again, mm. where, the, you know, where the drug trade was excited and expanded mm -hmm. and moved to ever more dangerous substances. And crime rose and the police cracked down you know, in ever more violent ways and the thing spiraled out of control. Mm -hmm. And that process in the U.S. has, has pushed this relentlessly with no concern at all for the practical consequences. Yeah. And so, so as a result, you have a society that is consumed by the drug war and has given rise to monstrous characters like Duterte. At one point, Duterte, I mean, essentially said, I'm going to do to the drug dealers what Hitler did to the Jews. Mm hmm and 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 and, and no, and and, I, and again, I, I don't want to let Duterte off the hook. No, he's a two-bit. He's a two-bit thug. But but clearly, the the basis was laid by the United States in these completely insane, ultra moralistic, and terribly da you know damaging drug policy. And then you sort of the, the American population in general gets to sort of sit back and kind of chuckle and go, oh, those silly Philippines, look at, you know, electing, electing these people who don't have any kind of platform and just have a famous name. They don't really know how to do democracy and sort of wash our hands of it. As if Americans are so much better. I know. <laughs> That's really the thing. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of, of violence, uh, you know, as always on a Monday, we have news organizations in the United States totaling up the injuries and fatalities from mass shootings over the weekend. And I don't have a total right now, but there were deadly mass shootings all over the country. 47 people hit by gunfire in Chicago over the weekend. Two people killed. Two people killed in a mass shooting in South Carolina. One person killed in a mass shooting just down the block here in D.C. Two people killed in San Antonio. Lots of people injured in several states. And again, most of this is just these are just the mass shootings, not the individual shootings. And so, I mean, on one hand, on one hand, you know, I think in the United States, we tolerate levels of gun violence that our uh, peer nations would find absolutely intolerable. Right. I, and but that is the case day in and day out. And so simultaneously right now, we are having a moment of uh, focusing on crime at a national level and at a state level. I think this focus on crime almost always serves political purposes and usually ends up serving right wing purposes. And so I wonder I wonder what you think is happening here. Right. Are we really seeing um, a sort of escalation in violent crime or are we seeing, you know, another cycle of focusing on violent crime uh, to the benefit of, of Republicans at the national and state level? 
Oh, I, I think we definitely are seeing a, a rise in violent crime. I mean, all the mm-hmm. all the statistics seem to bear that out. There's been a a dramatic increase. Now, it, it start it started from from fairly low levels because crime had fallen uh, until I think the late 20 teens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's rebounding quite smartly, and people are freaking out. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, still far below the peak of the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it is it is it is snapping back, and people are really worried and concerned. And it's going to really hurt the Democrats. Uh, in November, I'm I'm quite yeah. convinced. Um, so uh, so people are freaking out. Uh, but but um, but yet again, I, I mean, American politics are so dysfunctional uh, that Americans can't focus on crime. Instead, they dance around the the topic and engage in infinite political games. Yeah, and which you know, and which is you know, in which crime itself you know objectively recedes. And we and we launch into these crazy debates over the Second Amendment, over you know, over uh, uh, you know, gun laws, over right to carry, over this crazy uh, this crazy attempt to uh, to uh, to to you know to to stop people with uh, histories of domestic abuse from purchasing guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's completely ineffectual. But you know, so so the, the debate fritters off into comp- into peripheral areas rather than concentrating in a serious, objective, constructive manner on the problem at hand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just uh, it, it's an example of just how dysfunctional uh, U.S. politics have become. Yeah, because it's, you know, I think the problem is the only accept, you know, the, the only mechanisms to fight crime that we seem to find uh politically feasible are just to throw more money into a racist and ineffective system of policing, right? And anything else it gets made fun of or, or is perceived to have no actual chances, right? We're just, certainly we are not going to sort of overhaul our uh, economic system to help people live more comfortably, right? So it's, and then people get uncomfortable, you know, if you're, you're sort of a liberal, you're sort of uncomfortable with this idea of wanting to have more police on the street because you've read all the stories and you understand, you know, the the problems with policing. So then you're sort of stuck in this position of uh, having to pretend that crime like doesn't exist and it's fine, everything's fine, which also isn't right. But if you're not willing to sort of advocate for major sort of social and economic uh, restructuring, then you're sort of, you're sort of stuck. Yeah, I mean, it, it puts liberals in a really bad spot. Mm. I mean, I mean, liberals, you know, they they complain that the that the Republicans are exaggerating the problem, that you know that you know that somehow complaining about crime is racist, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that crime rates are rising. Uh, that black people are you know among the, the those who suffer most from it and are the ones who want you know, who are who who want some kind of want the government to do something about it, to take mm-hmm. swift action. To 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 rein in the problem, mm-hmm. uh, so so liberals wind up wind up looking really foolish and denialist and unrealistic, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and and guys like uh, like like Boudin and you know in San Francisco are voted out of office mm-hmm. because he's seen as being like you know soft on crime. Um, but uh, but what Americans don't realize is that that is that countries in Europe, which uh, which is, in a sense they have. Both a softer approach, but a more efficient, comprehensive approach. Mm-hmm. So you know, so so yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, so um, so you know, so prisons in Norway, 
you know, sort of, you know, almost a ma- look like, like discount hotels. They're so comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is that the violent crime rate in Norway is extraordinarily low. Right. Who and cares? Threat, Who cares if prison is comfortable if it is effective at fighting crime? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's an effective deterrent. Yeah, it's a, you know apparently being sent to a to a to a low grade hotel for five years deters people from committing crimes. Yeah, we have a problem with recognizing what is effective in this country. You know, I mean, you're saying we have a problem with. Uh, debate. We have a real problem with, uh, you know, sort of empiricism. <laughs> There's a real lack of it in our in our reporting and in our, our political debate. And it's uh, it's, you know, to our detriment. Right. We are living amidst the consequences. Um, yes. Yes, we are. That is quite true. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, you know, speaking of on the topic of gun violence, uh, we had another report over the weekend. We now have a number of news organizations saying that sources have confirmed to them that police at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, never actually tried the doors to the classrooms the shooter in that case was in. So, you know, the police first uh, you know, made it known that the shooter had barricaded himself in the classroom. He got into the school, barricaded himself, you know, in these two classrooms and they couldn't get at him. Then it turned out that that barricading just meant that he shut and locked the doors. And now we don't even know if that was true. Maybe they could have turned the handle and walked in. And I do not pretend to know the best tactics for taking down an active shooter in a school, though I have to imagine trying to get into the room that he's at would be part of it. But, you know, it just becomes more and more clear that whatever the police should have done, they have been lying to us the whole time. Like from the very beginning, they have been absolutely lying about their actions. And, you know, for people who want to know exactly what happened at that elementary school, it seems like the only way to to get there is for national attention to remain on the case long enough to, you know, pressure people to keep up these investigations and kind of make this department come clean. And I guess, you know, I, I wonder if we will be able to maintain our attention another couple of weeks on this shooting. Well, I, I, I think I think Uvalde and Buffalo were turning points. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I think that things really have reached a certain critical mass. Uh, so I don't think there'll be these, these will be so easily forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that before too long, there will be similar incidents will arise. Yeah. But I think that, that what is really disconcerting, of course, is the complete paralysis uh, on the part of government. Yeah. I mean, there is just nothing government can do to respond to this problem. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is paralyzed. It's ineffective. I mean, essentially, you know, essentially, when 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 parents send you know send their kids off to school, uh, they know they're vulnerable to a shooter, and there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. The the, the police are incompetent. You know the the gun laws are insane. Yeah. You know and uh, and um, and and so their kids will be will be massacred. Well, and 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 by the way, you know you know these kids these this high high powered rifle. That this 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 eighteen year old used in in Uvalde, mm-hmm. this blew children apart. Yeah, they were unrecognizable without DNA test, tests. Mm-hmm. You know, so so a, a country which is unable to intervene to take action in, in an intelligent, comprehensive, constructive, sober manner. 
is a country which is in serious, serious trouble. I want to ask you, Dan, and we don't have that much time, but I'm very curious. I mean, yeah, you know, you have a shooter traveling to to a Buffalo parking lot in front of a supermarket specifically to murder black people. You have 19 children killed in this elementary school. Uh, You said they were turning points, but if they're not a turning point, uh, you know, when it comes to government action on access to guns, then what are they a turning point toward? A turning point on, on, on the way... Americans see their government. Hmm. I mean, I think I think Americans realize that they've got a problem on their hands. Mm-hmm. The government is not is not performing in a in an effective manner. Somehow, democratic self government is breaking down, mm-hmm. and therefore Americans are despairing that in, uh, that a growing list of pro- that a growing list of problems will be attended to in any kind of meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a there's a, a growing sense of despair, of hopelessness, of pessimism, that government is unreformable. And they're correct, by the way. Government in this as it's presently constituted is unreformable. But this is a very dangerous moment because it allows it allows, you know, you know, uh, uh, um, demagogues of all sorts to step in. Uh, the, the US is simply not that different. From the Philippines, that is the that is the issue at hand. Yeah, oh, that's uh, yep. Grim predictions. I'm not going to disagree with you though, Dan. Dan, as always, thank you so much for joining us. That was author and journalist Dan Lazar. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about politics at a level that should feel, you know, uh, graspable, comprehensible, and immediate to people. The level of politics uh, probably most worth engaging at, and that is uh, state and local politics. We are talking about Washington, D.C.'s primary tomorrow. Uh, D.C. has a very strange system of government with, you know, powers that differ greatly from those in most states. Um, Tomorrow there is a primary. It's really only Democrats competing. There are primary races for the governorship, for the city council chair, for attorney general, and for several other ward council members. Here to talk to us about those races and a couple of other issues that D.C. is grappling with is Salim Adolvo. He's Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner for District 8C07 in Washington, D.C. Salim, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me on. So uh, of these races, I mean, obviously the mayor's race is very important, but uh, but which of these other primaries tomorrow could have the most impact on D.C. residents? That's a lot. (laughs) I actually think that the attorney general Mm -hmm. yeah, impact because that's an open seat Mm -hmm. in the District of Columbia. Juveniles are prosecuted at the attorney general level Mm -hmm. as we see the spike in recent years of juvenile violence. That'll have a huge impact on how things are going to move forward, especially for our young people. I do think that the open seat in Ward 5 will be a huge impact, as well as open seat in Ward 3. Mm -hmm. Those are new council members. And when new council members come in, 
under the current system that the way that the current council chair has it, if he's also reelected, they wouldn't have committees. Mm-hmm. So uh, having a council member that's brand new without a committee uh, could be really impactful for your ward because they don't get to oversee much. They just have to be on a committee as as opposed to chairing it. And chairing the committee is very powerful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have the in the attorneys general's race is this has this been an issue that they have been uh, campaigning on and trying to to draw attention to the issue of uh, juvenile um, sentencing? Uh, I've seen it very little. I think that most residents in the District of Columbia, from what I have seen, aren't fully aware of of the entire role of the attorney general mm-hmm. as uh, adults in the District of Columbia as far as felonies goes, are prosecuted at the federal level. Mm-hmm. The them shipped all over the country. So a lot of people just aren't aware of the total uh, realm of the attorney general. So that particular element has not come up as much as I think that it has should. Hmm. How important is this contest to Mayor Muriel Bowser? Uh, she has some very vocal critics, uh, particularly about her handling of issues of police brutality and, you know, as usual in D.C. politics, about her coziness with developers. Uh, but I wonder if, if much of that is sticking and if she feels like she's in any danger here. Well, you should always um, be aware of your challengers. Right. And I would say you should never underestimate anybody because voting can be a very emotional thing for people. Mm-hmm. Something could happen between now and, you know, tomorrow morning and turn voters one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's very difficult to beat an incumbent, especially an incumbent that's outraged you almost two to one. Mm-hmm. I do think that many of the policies that she's been put in, that she has put in place are difficult to really grasp and understand unless you're really into politics mm-hmm. uh, because people want to see things right now. And so when you put a policy into place, it do, it takes time to be implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the programs that are available for residents, uh, residents have to step up and say, I want to be a part of that. They just don't appear in your doorstep. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes it's a challenge in connecting people to the resources that you have made available. Mm-hmm. And some of uh, her staff has been able to execute well on that. And then some others, there's some challenges. I think for the two uh, primary challengers in this primary, which are both council members white, they're going to have a hard road to climb, mainly because she has the the position of the mayor to campaign from. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, this is what I've done. This is what I'm doing. And they'll have to say, this is what I plan to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a promise versus something that's more tangible. Mm-hmm. Hard to overcome. Is there any chance that the challengers at least, you know, can, you know, uh, competitors at a primary and a national level, you know, have the opportunity to push or pull candidates in one direction? Is that the same in this uh, mayor's race? Well, being that this city is primarily uh, democratic, mm-hmm. it's really tough to separate, you know, what your policies are because they're, you know, in theory, all democratic policies. But I, I think that there are some hot button issues that people are uncomfortable with with the current mayor. Many people didn't like how she handled the return of students to school during COVID. Mm-hmm. So that's something that has been used by uh, Robert White's campaign mm-hmm. try to try to garner some steam. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that that'll be enough. I mean, she does have a lot of wins in her administration over the last seven and a half years. They just have to be able to articulate those things well. Mm-hmm. And as an advisory neighborhood commissioner, I'm able to see some things that the average resident doesn't see. And there are some things that I think that the incumbent has done very well, but her team hasn't communicated those things well. And so hopefully they can get that message out there if they're looking to win. 
What do you think those things are? Because on the show, we we have talked to a lot of critics of Muriel Bowser and not a lot of people who have come to her defense. So what do you think she's you know not getting credit for that she should be? Well, you know, you look at the University of the District of Columbia, for example, uh, in terms of getting access to students that want to go to school. The last year of your, uh, excuse me, the last semester, if you're a senior, it, the fee is waived. And that's something that's happened under her administration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a workforce development program here in the District of Columbia through the unit through UDC, that's free for any district resident. All you need to be able to do is show that you're a resident and have some ID, and you can sign up and take these classes. And that's important because, especially if you're a returning citizen, let's say one in seven D.C. residents are returning citizens, this is an opportunity for you to learn the skills of plumbing, electrical, carpentry, construction management, Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Those were uh, job opportunities that were considered essential. So a lot of those people in those fields continue to work. And under her administration, you know, that has happened. So I think that's a win. And having those schools be in uh, some of the most underserved and under-resourced communities makes it easier for them to participate. Mm -hmm. And I think those are wins. Um, It's just not as widely known as it, it, it should be. Then you have the D.C. Infrastructure Academy mm-hmm. uh, that helps uh, residents you know, get jobs, especially with PEPCO. And those aren't just minimum wage jobs. Those are jobs that are paying uh, $25 an hour. And folks that work with PEPCO may not get hired by PEPCO, but they will get hired. Mm-hmm. I think those are all wins that need to be communicated. I have to say, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but not uh, learning how to become a plumber is one of my regrets. It's the first job I wanted to have when I was a kid, and I've thought about it my whole life. Why didn't I do that? Um, I want to ask about uh, some some ballot initiatives and, and the impact um, of, of the Roe v. Wade decision that, that could have here in D.C. Uh, on the tipped minimum wage, the city already voted to increase its tipped minimum wage back in 2018 with Prop 77, but the D.C. Council decided to repeal it after the city again had said, we want to do this. We want to raise the tipped minimum wage gradually uh, to $15 an hour. Now the question is back again. It won't make this ballot, but it's going to make the one in November. Can you talk to us about you know the process of, of getting that back on the ballot again, and uh, and who has been standing in the way? From what I understand is that uh, each ward has to have a requisite number of signatures mm-hmm. uh, to make the ballot. I don't, I'm not aware of that exact number right now. Mm-hmm. I think that what is in the way is not necessarily a person, but the process. Mm-hmm. And the, the boundaries of the wards have changed since the beginning of that process because of redistricting. Mm. So it's more to me of a cleric, I don't want to say a technical, a clerical error, but because the census takes place every 10 years and you need to redistrict every 10 years, it also happened during the time of the primary. Mm-hmm. So from what I've studied and read is that the number of people from one ward shifted, which made it uh, difficult to say that if they didn't know if they were using the current system at the time or the new one. Mm -hmm. of where the voters particularly land. Mm -hmm. I think that's been the big barrier. But now in terms of it making the ballot uh, in the general election, I believe it will make the ballot. And now the question is, will it be overturned again? Yeah. have folks that sit on both sides of the fence. But what I think that I see is that if you are someone who is a tip wage worker, you can still collect your tips. Yeah. It's not going to change. The issue is, Will prices now go up at some of these restaurants? Mm-hmm. 
And I think that it might be, you know, given that we're still operating under COVID to some degree, that that's still, that will impact restaurants greatly. Mm-hmm. And we've seen also many restaurants close. Mm-hmm. I do think that it will impact the restaurant's bottom line if they have to now pay staff $15 an hour. And so I don't, I'm not sure that many restaurant owners, especially the small mom and pop ones, We'll sit well with that. Yeah, I mean, this is it's been the sort of restaurant industry uh, lobby that pushed hard to kill it last time. But I mean, it's just I don't know. I, I think that all workers deserve a living wage. And, and having been, a you know, a service worker myself for a really long time, you know, coming coming to your employer and asking them to voluntarily, you know, make up make up the wages, the tips that they're supposed to if you don't earn enough in a shift, uh, you know, to to make the minimum that you're supposed to get. It's just unrealistic. People aren't going to do it, especially people who are vulnerable. So, you know, I, I'd like to see the restaurant industry just sort of grappling with how they can create a business model that allows them to pay their staff a living wage. I also wanted to ask what could happen to abortion rights in D.C. if Roe versus Wade is overturned by the end of this month, which seems pretty likely because, you know, around the country, states and state governments will retain the ability to preserve abortion rights if that decision is overturned. But in D.C., it's more complicated. And and I wonder if you could talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. So from what I've seen is that we have a couple of council members that are um, introducing or have introduced legislation, you know, to address that. And that is to not penalize uh, women who seek to get an abortion and it's going to be difficult and nuanced just mm-hmm. the way that the District of Columbia's government is set up. Many of the laws still have, not many, all of the laws still have to be approved by Congress. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, this is just an extension of the federal government. And depending upon how it chooses to operate, it can either let something go or not. And so I think we're going to, it's really going to be very confusing for a lot of the residents because they may have to go to Maryland or to Virginia mm-hmm. to have their needs met under this particular provision. But then the question is, will their insurance cover it? it will, so there's going to, Oh yeah. And will DC be able to cover it? If that's something somebody wants, it, it, there's a lot that just has to be discussed. And I don't think that we've been made aware of all of the particular nuances of that. Mm-hmm. And the unfortunate part is you're still going to have, especially uh, young women who don't have the, the necessary education and the resources, they're still going to try to terminate pregnancies early. Mm -hmm. So then we're going to have to deal with the repercussions of that as well. So I think there's still a whole lot more that will have to be discussed. But I I, I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, young women in the the District of Columbia leave D.C. to go get the health care needs that they have. Yeah. And really shine a light on how, uh, you know, how, how disenfranchised D.C. residents can be when, the, you know, the city very clearly uh, votes for one thing. Right. Very clearly has a has a position on an issue and would like to enact its own uh, its own rules and its own laws governing that issue. And is blocked by the U.S. Congress, who represents people from very far away who have nothing to do with life in D.C. I mean, if this shines a light on on how discriminatory uh, that system is to some degree. Maybe maybe that'll have some long term benefits. Yeah, that's you know still an issue around statehood. You know, mm-hmm. someone that lives in Alaska, someone that lives in Hawaii, someone that lives in Maine and Florida have more say over what happens in the District of Columbia than the Council of the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. You just don't have the. There's no statehood here, so the local government doesn't have the authority to execute. You know what it needs. Mm-hmm. So everything, even from the budget to 
a proclamation still has to go up that far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was Salim Adolfo. He's Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner for District 8C07 in Washington, D.C. Salim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We are going to just keep moving because there is an issue that has been all over the headlines today that I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about on the show. And that, of course, is this new decision by FINA, the International Federation that administers swimming competitions that are recognized by the International Olympic Committee. They have adopted a new policy that will only let trans women swimmers compete in women's events if they transitioned before the age of 12, which is going to rule out, you know, a lot of people. people. I mean, I was going to sort of jokingly say everyone, but there might be a swimmer (laughs) out there who transitioned early. I mean, it's going to rule out a lot of people because in very many places, people cannot transition by that age, whether they want to or not. Uh, The IOC had been urging the body to come up with a different measure than individual testosterone levels and had said, hey, you know, can you instead of just using testosterone levels as a proxy individual by individual, can you show us some evidence to demonstrate when a performance advantage exists? And so the organization has done this and uh, are sort of pretending that it's okay because they're going to encourage an open competition category, uh, which I can't really see working out very well for anyone. FINA also had to come out and say, hey, 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 by this cutoff, we are not encouraging people to transition really early. We are just saying it's not possible for trans women not to have an advantage if they went through puberty before they transitioned. And so joining us to talk about, you know, how they arrived at this decision and what it means is Carly Webb. She's a journalist, videographer, uh, labor and trans rights organizer with the PSL in Connecticut. Carly, thanks for being here. Michelle, John, always good to be back on Political Misfit. What's going on? Uh, Well, this decision seems to be making a lot of people unhappy. And I want to ask one Two questions, really. Did swimming need a new competition framework? And, you know, was there a problem with using individual testosterone levels as a metric? Okay, let's just call this what this is. I can answer your question best by a short explanation. This is the Leah Thomas rule. Yeah. Yes. I'm calling it because this is a direct response to the fact that someone is afraid that Leah Thomas is going to climb out of the Seine River and burn Paris in 2024. Right. Yep. Monster movie mentality all over again. There's no scientific, medical, or competitive rationale for this policy change at all. There is none. And it will just effectively stop trans women from swimming, at least for the next several decades, it seems like. I mean, I'm not, I am not aware of any trans, uh, trans girl swimmer out there who transitioned before puberty. And so, you know, I think we've talked about this before, uh, Carly, like, Sports will have to come to grips with the idea of a trans woman winning sometimes, you know, and it does really feel as though they are tinkering with regulations to just make sure, yes, okay, we'll allow trans women to compete. But if it seems like you might win, we have to find a reason to exclude you. Michelle, this rule was cisgender people making a rule for the comfort of cisgender people with the absolute ignorance of transgender people. Mm -hmm. It's what this is. First off, this whole concept of, well, you got to get things going by 12. Um, first off, that's usually the time when you start things. That's usually around the age when things get started. See, this is, this is an example of the, of the abject ignorance of a lot of cisgender people who, unfortunately, 
are either running governing bodies or get elected to state legislatures like mm-hmm. certain people in this country that have put over 200 pieces of legislation in the last year, in the last two years, mm-hmm. over keeping transgender, making discrimination against transgender people legal. And one thing I do want to point out, I've monitored a lot, I've monitored a lot of the news channels today. Mm-hmm. I have seen more coverage about this than I saw about even the don't say gay law in Florida. Mm-hmm. Something, something's out of whack here. Mm-hmm. And people think, oh my God, this is, this is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And, and to those who say, oh, it's just sports, this is being used as a rationale to pass things like what you're seeing in Florida, mm-hmm. seeing in Texas, what you've seen in 18 other states in this country right now. We are in a position in the United States, I'm speaking directly as an athlete, as a journalist, as an organizer, and as a transgender American, we are building a no-trans land in this country. We're building the type of country I need a green book to travel in. And since we're, since we're celebrating the federal Juneteenth holiday, let's understand what that means. Let's chew on that for a minute. Well, Carly, I want to ask, you know... Travel in their own country. Mm-hmm. How bad this is getting. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what... Are there competition bodies that are using... A, a framework that you think would be a good model? Like, it, what would be a fair and reasonable uh, hormone use timeline or, or framework for, for regulating competition? And that's the thing. That, there's a lot of devil in that detail. Mm-hmm. For starters, for me, the IOC framework for the IOC framework of fairness, the new IOC regulation, we're telling government bodies, get away from a blanket from a blanket serum testosterone rule. Mm-hmm. Away from that and kick it case by case. Mm-hmm. I can run with case by case. But I think I think we're we're getting one step ahead with that question. Okay. Just before we make reg before we make regulations, we actually need to get people who understand the regulation, who understand not just the sporting end of it and the and the medical end of it, but also the transgender end of it. Mm-hmm. In other words, you need people like Blair Hamilton, who's been doing a lot of research work in the UK, Joanna Harper, who's, who's part of a research team at Lonsborough University in, in England, mm-hmm. is directly looking at this, that's directly looking at these things. You need all that research at the table. You need a Dr. Veronica Ivy at the table. You need a Chris Mosier at the table. You need transgender people who are in sports sitting at this table who not only understand the sporting end of it, but they understand what transition entails, what steps it involves. You need medical professionals that are also in line with that. Because mm-hmm. right now, what you have, once again, you have a, you have a room full of cisgender people. In fact, all cisgender people mm-hmm. have made a ruling. They have made a ruling out of total ignorance. Any, endocr- any endocrinologist, any health professional works with transgender youth especially will tell you, this 12-year-old thing, this is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Most of the things that you're, you're calling for a complete transition, well, first, what does that even mean? You have these people that are saying all these things and cannot define them and have no idea what they're talking about. You can't, this rule is strictly about one thing. And I want to, and then Michelle, we got to bring, I want to bring this in here because it's important. Do mm-hmm. you remember back at the, at the NCAA swimming championships in Atlanta a couple months ago where Leah Thomas competed? Mm-hmm. You remember there were the protests, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why, why we're all of a sudden seeing the knee jerk reaction. 
not just from FINA, but also from Union Cyclists International, the world governing body cycling, who, who put a brand new regulation on Friday. FINA just said, hey, UCI, hold my beer. <laughs> I need more draconian. Yeah. Main reason why is you had protests down there. And one of those groups of protesters came from the United Kingdom. They're led by a person named Kelly Jean Keane. Kelly Jean Keane is a notorious, well-known transphobe in the UK with links to white nationalist organizations. Her and her married band of transphobes flew 4,000 miles over to that over to this event. They also linked up with another group that's based in the United States called Save Women Sports, a group based, a group of Karens based in Minnesota. And they flew down there for one purpose, to harass and hound and boo and just and go after Leah Thomas mm-hmm. for an entire weekend. Mm-hmm. That was the reason. Now, British Cycling was scared that, that this person would do the same at the National Omnium Championships. That's why they kept Emily Bridges out. And now the IOC and a lot of swimming governing bodies are thinking, we don't want these people anywhere near our competition, so we better keep Leah Thomas or anyone like her out of it. Mm-hmm. People don't want to talk about this, but that's part of what it is. And, and anyone who believes that this is not happening, look back at the news reports. Heck, look at the ES. Go on ESPN3's website and look at the coverage. You'll see these people. They made it. They made sure they got their infernal signs and their transphobia in front of the TV cameras. They, and they said they're doing it again, and they're raising money to do it again. Mm-hmm. Anywhere there's a trans woman competing, they are going to pick it. Mm-hmm. And the Austrian Fina says, we don't want that smoke. So that's part of the reason. It's, this was a reaction not to anything competitive, not to anything medical or scientific. This is strictly a reaction to the fact that there are transphobic people out there, and they are gaining the ear of a lot of legislatures and prime ministers. If you heard Boris Johnson a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and presidential candidates, you know, like Rick DeSantis now, they don't want this type of pump. They don't want this pressure. Mm-hmm. And they talk about fairness. When does Leah Thomas get some? Because I, I shudder to think what she's going through today. Yeah. Her name dragged through the, dragged through the mire again. Yeah. That was journalist and videographer Carly Webb. Carly, we could always talk to you for much longer, but we're out of time on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, John, I wanted to, of course, I would have loved to talk about this with our guest, but then I would have had to interrupt her before we finished. But uh, Megan Rapino made a statement that I think is really worth looking at also. And she was asked about, you know, including trans women in sports and said, you know, I'm I'm 100 percent supportive of trans inclusion. But she also said, look, you know, one, sports is not the most important thing in life. And also we keep looking at this issue through the very uh, extremely tiny lens of elite sports. Right. And drew attention to the fact that, yes, of course, this is going to affect the life of of Leah Thomas, who could, you know, might have been on the way to being an an elite swimmer, certainly is an elite swimmer, swimmer at the college level already. But, you know, when you start to just you're talking about kids in elementary school being able to play sports or not being able to play with their friends on the team or not like this is that's who is going to be much more affected uh, and whose, you know, lives are going to be exposed to scrutiny and upended much more than, you know, the tiny, tiny handful of people of any gender who are able to compete in elite sports. And I think it is important to remember, uh, you know, who the vast majority of people affected by these rules are going to be. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks to all of our guests, as usual, to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>